Molly and I lived in Southern California in from 1993 to 1996, and it made me think of when my grandpa always used to say, California, it's the land of fruits and nuts. And uh, he was a grumpy German just like me. But anyway, it, we saw a lot of amazing things, interesting things. Um, massive earthquake, fires, floods, no pestilence. Um, but interesting time to live there, interesting place, interesting experience. One of the standouts was the fact that we witnessed the trial of the century. The white Ford Bronco going down the freeway. I remember watching it live. Nicole Brown Simpson, Marsha Clark, people standing on the street corner selling t-shirts that said, don't squeeze the juice. I mean, it was just like, it was everywhere, I know, but especially living in Southern California, it was everywhere. The trial of the century. Everyone who would come to see us, we would think they'd want to go to Disneyland, but usually they would want to go to the beach in Disneyland, but then they would want to do the drive. Some of you, I think, in this room wanted to do the drive. I don't know how many times I did the drive where we would drive, you know, between the two houses because there was all this debate about could he have done the drive during the amount of time that it was allotted. And so the people had barricades up in their yards because they were so tired of people like you, oh, us, <laughs> doing the drive. It was just amazing. The trial of the century. This week I got online and typed in the trial of the century. I was kind of uh, saddened to see that there are at least 15 trials of the century in that century. It's just something we use when we want to sell newspapers or hits or whatever it might be. I looked. I, there was an interesting article that said trial of the century is a term that's applied to a lot of court cases, even though the grammatical restrictions of the phrase should disallow it. The trial of the century, and there are all kinds of the trial of the century. Well, that's my kind of awkward, strange introduction this morning, because without hype or overstatement or grammatical contradiction or confusion, we are going to talk about and look at in the Bible the trial of the centuries. Most certainly, the trial of Jesus Christ changed everything. Jesus changes everything. His crucifixion, his uh, being found guilty even though he was innocent, indeed is the trial of the centuries because it changes everything. It really changes everything. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to join me at looking at the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to John, where we are learning about the trial of the centuries because of its influence, impact, significance. Uh, this, is, this is the trial that according to Acts chapter 2 uh, was predestined by God, predetermined by God. These godless men are going to find Jesus to be godless even though he was the only one who was truly godly. But the influence and the significance for us in God's perfect plan of redemption is sweet and significant. So, John chapter 8, or the gospel according to John, excuse me, 18. We're going to look at verses 19 to 40. Uh, what's going on here is we would have not only the trial, it's Passover. Um, Jesus has been betrayed. We've seen Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and now we're going to witness him being tried. If you'd like to have an outline this morning, my outline is going to follow this. It's going to be seven outstanding things about Jesus that we learn at his trial. 
seven outstanding things about Jesus that we learn at his trial. And as you might be able to see from the table up front here, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper when we're done. Uh, Quite fitting given the fact that it was on the night when he was betrayed, he gave bread and wine and said, do this in remembrance of me. This this isn't an empty trial. This isn't just a bad luck trial. It's more than history. It's redemptive history. Because he's doing what he's doing voluntarily, and he's doing it for you if you are a believer and were to eat and drink to remember that he did it for us so we could be forgiven. So it's exciting, I think. Outstanding thing number one about Jesus that we learn from his trial. Number one, Jesus is not a cult leader. Jesus is not a cult leader. And the reason I'm saying that right up front is cult leaders like to hide things. Okay? More about that in a moment, but let's keep this clear. Beginning in verse 19, the high priest, the high priest at this point in time in this text is Annas. And technically, we saw last time, it's his son-in-law who's high priest, but think of him as, as high priest emeritus. And if you don't know what emeritus means, he's, he's acknowledged as the high priest. He's the one who's still alive, and everyone considers him to be the, 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 the ultimate high priest. Rome says he can't be anymore, but according to Jewish law, he has to be for life. And so there's a conflict. I'm telling you more than you want to know. But historically speaking, he's not the high priest, but he's the one who the Jews think still should be the high priest. And so they look to him as being the wise elder. So the high priest, Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I love this, please note, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And in regular conversations, I don't uh, pronounce things like that. But on purpose. Because Jesus is speaking on purpose. This has not been done in secret. Like cults do. Cult religious leaders. They like things that are hidden. Or lost. Or secret. And eventually, maybe... Once you're, you're in the cult, then they're going to reveal the secrets to you. In part, because that way they can't be critically examined by other people who know things. They prey upon the ignorant. Jesus is not that. Jesus is, is making it clear, I've done everything I've done. Broadly speaking, in public. To be scrutinized. To be evaluated. To be criticized. I'm not trying to overthrow anybody in secret. This has all been before your very eyes and witnesses. Jesus is not trying to, 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 to lead a revolt of some kind of sect. That's why I said he's not a cult leader. He's a religious leader, make no question about it. But he is as open as could possibly be. He's anything but Gnostic. He's anything but someone who should be associated with things that we hear about today, like the hidden gospel of. He has integrity. It wasn't just for his inner circle, or he wasn't some leader of some secret society, which would make him, in the Romans' eyes, more dangerous. And in the Jewish eyes, even with Annas. So let's move on to a second outstanding thing about Jesus 
and it's related to the first one, Jesus is insistent on objectivity. Lots of syllables for this early in the morning, I know. He is insistent. He insists on objectivity. The facts. Notice verse 22. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, notice objectivity of facts, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus isn't the the Savior who wins the argument based upon emotion or experience. Emotion and experience are good. But He's the objective Savior and He's insisting upon objectivity. Where am I wrong? Where have I done the wrong thing? Let's talk about right and wrong. Let's talk about truth and error. Let's talk about honesty and lies. Jesus is insisting on objectivity just like He's not the cult leader. I know this is true because of my whatever. No, we're talking about about right and wrong. How about verse 24? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we've got the, the elder, Annas, sending him to Caiaphas, the one who's recognized by the Romans. Are we on number three? Outstanding thing number three about Jesus. I realize we're going to talk about Peter now, but I couldn't help but even read about Peter in light of Jesus. So I, I, I wrote this down. Jesus is right. Jesus is the right and only worthy object of faith. Jesus is the right and only worthy object of faith. In other words, He's the one and only one you should be looking to for a Savior. He's the only one you should be trusting in. And I say this because a lot of times people trust in Jesus and in other things or people. And when it comes to trusting in other things or people, Peter's really high on the list. I was just going through some old photos uh, for something, and I was going through old photos being uh, at the Vatican, and the, and the picture of Peter, or not, it was my picture, but it's the giant, cool-looking statue of Peter outside of the Vatican. And he's got the keys, the keys to the kingdom, because you have to go to heaven through Peter, and Peter's the first pope, so you have to go through the church. Let's check out the actions of the first pope. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. We learned a little bit about Peter last time, but by now, it's been fulfilled what Jesus said he was going to do. 
Peter's not your man, folks. Look forward to meeting him in heaven. Thankful for what God did in his life. Thankful he was an apostle. And apostles are really important. We read about their importance in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning in our scripture reading. But it should be really clear to us who our trust should be in. And our trust has to be in Jesus as the only worthy object of our trust. Jesus is the only perfect one. And you need perfection. And you can find it in Him. I have to tell you a a good story about my life this week. Uh, It's related to this. I don't want it to be all about me, but I think you'll be encouraged. And it, it, it makes the point, Jesus is the only one we can ultimately trust in. If I've already told you the story, bear with me. I had jury duty on Monday with at least with, with one other person who's in this room. Go to jury duty. It was a positive experience. I don't know if I'm the number 20 or what uh, in the courtroom. And they ask, you know, when, when you're first introduced, they read your name. They want you to repeat your name, say what you do, um, and what your wife does if you're married or your spouse. So it goes on for hours and hours. Didn't have to say very much at all. Um, I wasn't in the box yet. They're looking for their 13, and I was like number 20. And uh, I, was take, I, was, I, was, I had my little moleskin out because I didn't want to look totally disrespectful because I think it's important, but, you know, it's like a long time. So I'm writing notes about something else. And toward the end, they're talking about right and wrong and whether or not you're a person who believes in right and wrong, uh, whether, or not you're, oh, whether or not you're a rule follower. And pretty much everybody was saying yes. Things like, do you show up at 5 till if you have a 2 o'clock appointment or 5 after? So one of the attorneys said, this is, I was the very last person to be asked. He said, Mr. Abendroff. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I put my notes away. I'm in trouble. Uh, yes. Tell us about you. Are, are, are you someone who thinks rules are important? I said, yes. I think rules are important. Well, Why? I didn't have a very good answer. I'm like, well, there are rules. Rules are meant to be kept. I mean, he said, well, okay, um, tell us more about your job. <laughs> See, it's so fun. It's like the Lord just took the golf ball and just put it on the tee and swung for me. I said, well, as you heard, I'm, I'm the senior pastor at Omaha Bible Church. I've been there for about 20 years. What else, what else would you like to know? How many members at the congregation there? I said, oh, about 400. I said, but I have to tell you, um, they're, they're not very good at following rules. <laughs> it was, and maybe I'm making it sound better than it was, um, but it was just good. He was a great communicator, and he was making me feel comfortable. And so in a comfortable way, I'm about ready to preach the gospel, and I didn't have to do it like a la John the Baptist style. I'm like, they're, but they're not very good at following rules. I said, that's why they need a savior. He said, oh, I see. And I said, as a matter of fact, I need to revise my statement as well. I said, I'm not very good at following rules either. That's why I need a savior. And he laughed and said something like this. Something like, I guess from your perspective and where you're coming from, um, there's only one person who truly followed all the rules. And I said, and that's right, and his name is Jesus. It was awesome. I, I walked out of there. Number one, it's like, you're dismissed. <laughs> right? But 
I walked out of there like I won the lottery or something. I mean, I just thought that was so fun to be able to do that. And you could have done the exact same thing. They might not have asked you the same thing about your job. I realize that. But this isn't rocket science. This isn't that complicated. We talk about this all the time. God requires perfect obedience. None of us, Peter included, meet the standard. There's only one who kept the rules perfectly. His name is Jesus. That's why we need Him. I just want to remind you of that. It's not that complicated. That's why we trust in Him. He pays for our disobedience. And as a substitute, He provides the positive obedience so that God will justify us by faith in Christ alone. So Jesus on trial, yes, we take a little um, side angle camera shot to Peter, but notice it's meant to be a contrast. Jesus is telling the truth. Jesus insists on objectivity. Jesus is not a compromiser. Oh, let's pan stage right. There's Peter. Only trust in the one who is perfectly trustworthy. Let's move on to number four. Sorry, I have no more cool stories like that one. That's it. Um, But number four, outstanding thing about Jesus, number four, Jesus is rejected by the self-righteous. He's rejected by the self-righteous. The the camera goes back to Jesus, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And that would be Pilate, Pontius Pilate. We would know him to be the governor. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled or become spiritually unclean, but could eat the Passover. You see? See the irony? Who's going to reject Jesus? The Jews are rejecting Jesus here, and they're the self-righteous ones. They're the ones who say they believe the Bible is true. Not only are they they the ones that say they believe the Bible is true, they're the ones who say, and we are going to follow it. We are Bible followers. We love principles. We love how-to sermons. And not only that, since it's Passover, it's the high a high festival, acknowledging God, providing forgiveness at the Passover. We are not going to get anywhere close to be contaminating ourselves because we're biblical, purists, pious, self-righteous. And they're going to insist on Jesus being killed, the innocent one. It's very troubling, very unsettling. Isn't it? We'll move on in just a second. But what's happening here is like, is like Romans chapter 10. They don't understand God's requirement. So they set up their own requirement. See, they couldn't meet God's requirement, which is love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So they kind of they, they have a lesser version of something they can accomplish by doing these things. So they don't see their sinfulness, like in Romans chapter 10. And if you don't see your sinfulness, you will never see Jesus for who He is as the sin-bearer and substitute. How about the irony, right? The Passover lamb? We're such good Passover people, right? We're faithful. Doggone it, we earned it, right? 
That kind of thinking. It's Passover. Oh, let's make sure we don't go in there because we're such good, faithful people. God likes us. Our Bibles are really worn out. I'm being a little pushy here with this because we could fall into the the trap of of being self-righteous and before you know it, we don't need Jesus anymore. Worn Bibles are good, don't get me wrong. But they're bad if you look at that or anything and you don't see your sinfulness and your need for Christ. And that's where they are. Number five, outstanding thing about Jesus. Number five, there are seven of these. Number five, Jesus is condemned unlawfully. He is condemned unlawfully. He didn't deserve to die. He doesn't deserve to have this. And it becomes clear in our passage. 29 says, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? So Pilate's representing the Roman authorities, the secular authorities, right? And and then the Jews are involved and they want Rome to crucify Jesus. They want to condemn Jesus. They don't want to do it. They want Pilate to do it for them. What what accusation? I underline the word accusation here, and I'm going to tell you why in a second. What accusation do you bring against this man? What, What is your charge? Now listen for it. Listen for the accusation. 30. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. These are not the droids you're looking for. Right? Call it a head fake. If you like big words, call it subterfuge. You like big words, call it obfuscation. If you don't like big words, head fake is good for football players, basketball players. My boys are like, you can keep your obfuscation, but I understand head fake. That what they're doing is they're, they're, they're changing the subject. Like, oh, don't, we're not, we, we actually don't have an accusation. We actually, we actually don't have something that would stick. He's innocent. It's avoidance. It's deflection. 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, How about this? It is not lawful. Are you hearing this? <laughs> it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. There's, there's kind of a lot going on here, but it, it doesn't have to be that complicated. The Jews aren't going to do it. They had ways they could do it. They could do it through stoning and through different... But they want this to be done now. They don't want to be the ones to do it for all kinds of reasons. They want Rome to do it. But it's interesting that what we're learning in John's Gospel account is actually this is happening this way to fulfill what Jesus said was going to happen. It's more than likely referring back to John chapter 12 when Jesus spoke of his death as a death that would be where he was lifted up which is used to describe the crucifixion. 
which is Roman. Which according to Jewish law is for those who are accursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The just, the one who should never be cursed, for the unjust, the ones who actually should be cursed. And this is according to plan by Jesus. But it's pretty amazing. They want him to be the the despicable, despised, unworthy, crucified by Romans one. And because of redemption and because of God's love and because this is a purpose that's what we learned about in John chapter 17, this is according to plan, this is how Jesus wants it to be too. Not because he wants to suffer, but he wants to be and will be the just for the unjust. To finish the sentence from the Apostle Paul, to bring us to God. So this is according to plan, this trial is. And you say, so far, Pastor, what's the application for me? It's to know who Jesus is. And a lot of what we're learning at the trial stuff we've already learned in John's Gospel account. Not much new going on here. But it's to show us that He's worthy of your faith. Maybe that's not the best way to say it. He, he is the true object of faith. He's the one you should be trusting in. This is, this is according to plan. This is how it's supposed to be according to a perfect plan of redemption. And he's not a cult leader. He's not a phony. He's not a fake. He didn't help. Well, but he's condemned unlawfully. Let's go to number six. Looking at the trial, what else can we observe about Jesus that's outstanding? Number six, Jesus is, sorry for this one, Jesus is the not-of-the-world King of the world. Jesus is the not-of-the-world, borrowing that from what he's going to say, King of the world. We could say King of the Jews, but he's actually King of the world. But his kingdom is not of the world. So we see this in the verses that come after, beginning in verse 33, if you'd want to look there with me. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so there's this in and out, and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? We don't know what his voice was like. I think we've read enough to know he's, he's not impressed with the Sanhedrin. He's not impressed with the Jews. Is he asking it with contempt? I don't know for sure. Are you the king of the Jews? By the way, John chapter 1 verse 49. Nathaniel says, you are the king of Israel. Not only that, in the other gospel accounts, it's clear Jesus affirms the question. Are you the king of the Jews? It's not as clear here, but he he definitely is not dodging it. He's affirming it. But he's affirming it in such a way, at least in John's gospel account, to draw out more questions. 
By the way, Jewish expectation was that they would have a king who would be a greater David. Chapter 1, verse 49. How about verse 34? Let's keep going. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? So now Jesus is doing the interrogating a little bit, but, but the idea seems to be, is this, is this your testimony? I mean, what, what do you mean by what you're saying? 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Probably on one level, you're not my king, regardless, because I'm not a Jew. So I think that's the right way to take it. You're, you're not my Lord. Am I a Jew? But probably also just with this kind of indignant kind of attitude. Please, right? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Why is this happening, right? What are your claims? What's going on here? What's with those guys who bring you here at inconvenience to me? And what's going on here? Are you who they say you say you are? Should I consider you a threat as I represent the Roman government? What's what's happening? There's still more ironies here. How about verse 36? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I'm the king, as has been affirmed, but not in the way you would normally think. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom, and he he, he teases it out, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Most certainly, I wouldn't have told Peter to, 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 you know, sheath your sword. Which just happened. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He's not saying it doesn't influence the world. He's not saying it's not involved in the world. He's not saying that, but it, but it comes from somewhere else. It works and operates differently, right? And then we could start teasing it out a little bit, like back in chapter 3. You probably don't remember. Maybe you have a better memory than I do. But back in chapter 3, when Jesus was talking about how you had to be born of the Spirit, you had to be regenerated by the Spirit. Unless you are born a second time supernaturally, you will not see the... What? Kingdom. Apart from God doing a great work in your life and giving you a new heart and giving you new eyes to see, if I can say it that way, apart from that happening, you you won't know who I am. You won't affirm me as the Messiah. You won't affirm my kingdom. You will continue to be spiritually blind. And so I think it's important that we read our text even in light of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus is the King. He's the King who reigns. He is the Savior King who delivers. But the way to comprehend Him and grasp what He's all about, oh yes, it's based upon objective, but also something supernatural that happens where you won't look at Him and say, 2 plus 2 equals 17. See, it's, it's actually the spiritual blindness that causes us to not 
comprehend what's actually objectively true. He's innocent. He's going to be proven to be innocent on all kinds of levels and fronts. And they're going to say, crucify him. My kingdom is not of this world. And you'll never acknowledge me in my legitimate position, person, reign, heavenly origin, apart from the Spirit of God working in your heart. My kingdom is different. There's more about that. And we're going to see it here in just a second. It's, it's super interesting. We, we don't have the time to go there, but like in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, uh, it talks about if you're, if you're in Christ and you believe in Christ, the world has been conquered. It's a different kind of conquering, isn't it? Especially at that point in time, there hadn't, the world has not been conquered by the believers, right? Crusaders might take that out of context, but that, that wasn't true in a physical sense. Nor was it ever meant to be. At least not until he comes again. There's a kind of conquering. There's a kind of freedom. There's a kind of spoils, if you will. It comes from Jesus, the King. There's more about that, though. Let's go to 37. Then Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. Some translations make it less ambiguous. Some make it more ambiguous. But he is answering in the affirmative. You say that I am a king for this purpose, to be the king, let's read it that way, for this purpose I was born. I was born to be king. You can bet your bottom dollar I'm king. I was born to be king. It's why I came into the world to be king. Messiah, ultimate deliverer, prefigured. I was born to be king. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to be king. To bear witness to the truth, even in our context, the truth that I am the king. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I need to stop doing that. It's starting to sound like too fiery. He's affirming, strongly affirming. I'm a different kind of king, different kind of kingdom. In, in that sense, I pose no threat to Rome. And in another sense, he poses a huge threat to Rome. But I most absolutely, positively am king. That's why I came to planet Earth. To be the deliverer, savior. Which is what a king would be. That's who I am. But back to John chapter 3, spiritually blind people, they don't get it. They don't understand. Now the king's going to be crucified? I do like it that he uses truth there too. To bear witness to the truth seems to be using it interchangeably with, with his status as king, king deliverer. And remember, he's been using truth in different contexts, but oftentimes with the same general idea, like in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He seems to be using those terms together and on purpose. I am the way, the way to God, and the truth and the life. He uses that in John, eternal life. No one comes to the Father. How do, you, how do you come to the Father? How do you become reconciled? 
through me, because I'm the way and the truth and the life. So let's not artificially separate those words more than we should. So here when he says, I'm the truth. Yeah, I'm the true King Deliverer. I'm the true Savior. I'm the one who truly brings eternal life. It's interesting that what, what's happening here, because it could be easy to get lost in the details... It's just further elaboration and confirmation of what's already been discussed in John. John is all about what it means to have eternal life. He stated it again and again and again, and he makes it very clear in chapter 20. And here we have it yet in another setting, when he's on trial. Yep, I'm the king. That's why I came into the world. In chapter 1, he came into the world to save. Yeah, he's the savior king. How about verse 38? Pilate said to him, What is truth? I don't know why we smile. It's because you don't, you don't even need to see a recreation of it and you think, oh, it's just, I don't know. I guess I think, what a piece of work. Did he say it with a French accent or something? You know, I, <laughs> he's the power guy. What is truth? You're not my king. What is your truth? If I don't do something for you that's significant, notice, if I don't do something for you that's significant, you're about to be executed. <laughs> you're the truth. What is truth? Who in the world do you think you are? That tells us that in light of what Jesus just said, he's still spiritually blind. Jesus actually made that articulate and clear right before he says this. Okay, number seven. Outstanding thing about Jesus, number seven. Jesus is the just for the unjust. He's the just for the unjust, to borrow from the Apostle Paul. How about 38, where it goes on to say, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews, that would be Pilate, and told them, I find no guilt in him. So, guiltless, we've already talked about just and unjust. I find no guilt in him. 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, No, this, not, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Or as Mark chapter 15 verse 7 says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. He's more than a petty thief. But what we need to see for now is the irony. Jesus is guiltless. He's more than guiltless, but he's not less than guiltless. He's guiltless. And they say, crucify him. Let the guilty go free. 
crucify the guiltless one. And I don't think I'm taking strange liberties to say that's how it works. The just for the unjust, that He might bring us, the Barabbases, if you will, who believe in Christ, to God. It's pretty good. It's not good that Jesus was mistreated. It's not good that Jesus is crucified. It's not good that... Injustice prevails. But God uses all things together for good. (laughs) And that's what's happening here. And it should cause us, even though it's troubling and unsettling because we love Jesus, to in the end know that we can say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. The just for the unjust. I do like it that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today because it was on the night when he was betrayed. All that's happening right here happens after their Passover meal and after they celebrate what we call communion for the first time. And after Jesus says, I want you to keep doing this. I want you to keep doing this until I come again. And so here we're going to eat and drink and we're going to eat and drink because God has given this to us graciously, so that we might remember Jesus for who He really is as the one we should be trusting in, the only one to be trusted in. So, lots of you are trusting in Jesus. For those of you who aren't trusting in Jesus, may God grant you faith and repentance that you might trust in Jesus. Because He's the only one who's really worthy of our trust, who brings eternal life to those who trust in Him. So, we're going to be served after I pray. We're going to eat together. We're going to drink together. And the Bible actually even says we do this as a proclamation. Okay? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And when we are all preaching together as we eat and drink, may we remember that Jesus saves and He saves mightily and He saves worthily and we are thankful that it actually is all up to Him. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You that He went through all of this. Because... He loved us and gave Himself up for us. We are thankful for historic accounts, but we're also thankful that the historic account is more than history because of its purpose. It's a redemptive account. I'm so grateful to know more about this. I'm so grateful to be able to study and to hear and to learn and to fellowship around this, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that that's good and right, but please help me and help us to know more, but to then find ourselves worshiping you more appropriately. That we would trust you like we've never trusted you, even as believers. That we would we would even hear your word preached this morning and proclaimed and 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 like never before, be resting in You. And thank You so very much for these simple things that we do that are beyond simple because of what they mean. 
And so as we eat and as we drink, may we be finding ourselves worshiping you even out of gratitude and thanksgiving that Jesus has done it and it's been paid in full and that he will never leave us or forsake us because of what he's already accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.